0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this.
1: The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.
0: 100 episodes of 101 Part-Time Jobs, the podcast where I speak to bands, musicians, artists about their story of survival, how they've managed to keep on doing what they do and the stories they've had along the way. Before I introduce Courtney Taylor-Taylor, which by the way is absolutely nuts that he's come onto this podcast, I am delighted to announce that to celebrate, to commemorate 101 episodes of 101 Part-Time Jobs and that 101st episode is coming tomorrow... I've done a book, a 35-page illustrated book of a selection of excerpts of stories from the first 101 episodes, including stories from John Darnielle from The Mountain Goats, Jeff Rosenstock, Izzy B. Phillips from Black Honey, Kevin Morby, Hey Colossus, Thurston Moore, and a dozen others. You can order that now at 101parttimejobs.com. It's 12 dollars 99 free postage in the UK. I should be getting them in the post next Wednesday, and I'll be sending them out immediately, So click onto 101parttimejobs.com Have a gander I've got some screenshots up there And if you'd like to buy one You can We've got Courtney Taylor-Taylor Of the Dandy Warhols For the 100th episode During lockdown He's been making these 30 second songs You can find them on their website Dandywarhols.com And for today's episode He told me about some of the early part-time jobs He had before the Dandies As well as 25 years Of the Dandy Warhols And some of the tales That they've had to endure Along that way Shout out to East London's Signature Brew. They've been making music-inspired beers since 2011. They've made collaboration beers with the likes of Mastodon, Idols, Sports Team, Slaves, and a whole bunch more. If you live in the UK, you can order from their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, and using the voucher code 101, podcast, all capitals, you can get 10% off your order. Alright, thank you so much for listening. 100 episodes, mental we got here. Here's Courtney Taylor-Taylor from the Dandy Warhols, who I think I woke up for this interview, and I think they had had a big night at the auditorium in Portland, their space, the night before. Thank you for listening. Go well.
3: Cheers! I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to find some power source for this fucking computer because, um, you know, there's a good chance it'll die because that's just, that's how my life works with, uh, modern technology.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I feel, I, I'm with you.
3: I detest it. I don't, I don't do social media at all, any of it. And, uh. Yeah, I, I just. Well, you, uh,
0: you're good at updating the website, though. I appreciate that.
3: I have a team of people that do that. Uh, I see. Yeah, I see. I'm not, that ain't me, man. I I got better <laughs> things to do with my life, like smoke pot and stare out the window. <laughs> Brushing my teeth is better than
0: that. <laughs> do you live in the studio? No, in that
3: no, block. No, definitely not. Yeah, I, I, people ask me that, and I and I, I always used to say. No, I am a person who likes to be able to leave the party.
0: Yeah, important. And
3: that's that's important. We used to have really hellacious ragers in there. I mean, hundred fifty, hundred fifty, two hundred people. I mean, but that's what you know. We have we have three bathrooms, not one shower, not one bed, <laughs> and that's why. Same that's- reason
0: kind of smart not having a bed i feel like if people see a bed they're gonna lay they're
3: gonna fuck in it they're gonna sleep in it they're gonna vomit pass out drunk and throw up you know i mean gross anything could happen
0: how did you get people to leave
3: uh you turn the music off and you turn all the lights on (laughs) 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 yeah what i yeah yeah (laughs) and it's a you know it's a warren of of like rooms and nooks and crannies and shit, so it, you got to make it pretty uncomfortable to get completely hammered cokeheads out of your studio at you know five a.m. or whatever.
0: How'd you keep the the expensive equipment separate out of the way?
3: God. I don't know. I I don't really know. I mean, we have all our gear there. I mean it's all in road cases so right. we thought we might want to go to the Bahamas or something and of course that <laughs> you know, that never that never happened our the fabulous part of our lives ended about a year after I had built the studio it's just been sitting there but it means we can cut co- you can cover everything mm. you know, covers on the mixing board on all the rack mounts of, of gear and yeah and all stuff so that's and then, all, you know, behind the gear is where you really can't go back there unless you're going to gingerly tiptoe around cables and stuff like that. And that's where the things, you know, expensive things that can fit in your pockets, like, yeah. like microphones. And so we, we haven't even had things leave that studio that we wish would leave the studio. Yeah, every five years we have to have a, a thorough uh, cleansing of Just the crap that accrues, you know, there's so much crap in that place. I mean, 10,000 square feet is is just... That's a lot. It is a lot of room. If you you turn your phone off and set it down somewhere, you can forget it. It'll take days.
0: That's great. That's what I want to do. I need that. I need that in my life.
3: Yeah, I get accused of doing that on purpose every now and then.
0: Every apartment in London is small you don't get well every apartment that i've ever been to but yeah courtney thanks you know again thanks so much for being up for this you know it's a podcast that you know my old band toured a lot and i just it got to the point where it was so sad that it was funny all the kind of shit jobs i was picking up between tours Um, what was the
3: name of that band
0: great cynics we we toured the east coast we did house show tours down the east coast um we were kind of like a Lemonheads, Billy Bragg, you know. That was our kind of dream to, you know, artists that we kind of wanted to emulate, I suppose. But
3: Evan, Evan Dando, you shoot a lot of smack, which is always good. Good way to, you know, keep a band together. Far you more, shoot a lot of smack.
0: Far more innocent. Did Evan Dando ever have any, you know, relaxed years? Do you reckon? Did he have any innocent years?
3: I don't. I don't know. I mean. You know, when I produce young bands and I have, you know, bands of new bands, you know, and they find their way to the studio and want to hang out, want to talk to me about music, help me produce a record and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can always tell which ones are the super hipster kids that, you know, think Keith Richards and Kurt Cobain and all those, you know, guys are so cool and shoot dope. And I always have to just pound it into their skulls. Like, okay, if you're going to be a junkie, you can be a junkie after you've made your first million, okay? Mm-hmm. You can do whatever mm-hmm. you want. Make your first million. You can just, you know, you can do whatever you want. Go out in a blaze of glory or whatever you think it is. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't be a mess. So I would imagine that, you know, I would imagine that everybody who, every junkie, every famous junkie had to get some work done before they became a junkie. In those early days, I remember from basically the year the band started. For ten years, I noticed that I had one friend die of a heroin overdose—at least one every year for the first ten years. Not not close close friends, but people that I would see that we, you know, hung out together and yeah. our bands had played together, and we were part of the same scene. You know, it was a small town. So we everybody knew each other and hung out all the time, and they just started dropping off. But those were generally, speaking of, uh, you know, you're talking about part-time jobs and stuff. I mean, these were the, these were the cats that, that didn't really like to have jobs at all. You know, I'm thinking back on over them, and I don't remember any of them um, being able to hold a job or, or really even wanting a job. I think generally they were pretty pretty unprepared people for the real world. Um, a lot of times they were really exceptionally good-looking people and, and unusually bright um, and probably got a lot of uh, ass-kissing in high school and when they were young and... Um, and really allowed to maybe work less hard than um, other, other people. And that kind of didn't really set them up for a lot of, you know, inner strength or, or self dependence.
0: Where did you fit into that equation? You know, I was
3: such a loner and, and I was, I, I read, uh, I was a, I was a very poor student, but um, I was bright enough that I would get, luckily, stuck into advanced placement courses that didn't have everyday homework situations. They just had big tests and write uh, essays on great works of literature historically. So uh, when I was about 14 or 15, um, we read... Death of a salesman. And I, that changed my life. I was absolutely scared to death of just aging um, as mm-hmm. a poor worker guy. I didn't want to be Willie Loman. I was, I didn't want to be Hap or Biff or Willie. I didn't, I just was horrified and, and frightened. So uh, I worked, I don't think I ever had. Um, less than two part-time jobs at any given time. I just worked yeah. constantly. I worked. I wanted to have cash in my pocket. I always had a phone, an apartment, and a and a car. I became a Volkswagen part-time Volkswagen mechanic, and I always had a Volkswagen bus. Yeah, I did that just by hanging out at this uh, shop called Big Hippie Repair, and they just worked on vintage German cars, um, and. Uh, I just hung out with on my free time to keep learning more and more and more. I was always a Volkswagen fan driver. You know, that was my first car. And um, until I really started making enough money to drive nice cars, I was a Volkswagen van guy for the entirety of my, my life. But I just hung out there until they started giving me work, you know, they, just the jobs they didn't want to do. Um, you know, the tubes that, that, hold your brake lines in place, get filled up with road grime and stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, like the brake line, her brake line snapped on her, you know, 78 Cabriolet or 81 Cabriolet or whatever. So <laughs> you, you, you want to do it, you know, give you 20 bucks an hour to dung out her brake lines and, you know, do that kind of, garbagey stuff
0: so you got some first-hand experience of seeing a an honest mechanic
3: very honest honest mechanics I mean they were you no know, they didn't they didn't waste time they didn't overcharge anyone they were they were just cool guys and they were all they all had a styly look and I loved that that they were you know like oh there's the fugazi looking kid you know that is mm. super super genius uh you know, manic depressant uh, bores out engines, you know, that they, you know, you've got cylinders, right? And yeah. if you want more power, you can bore them out. But you, you if you bore them out too much, um, because there's explosions under high pressure in those cylinders, uh, it'll crack the head. It'll actually crack the, the metal. So you can't bore them out too much or the, the metal gets too thin. It's, you know, and there was this kid that was like 16 years old and he was a genius from Benson technical school. And, uh, yeah, he was in and out of the hospital quite a bit, um, you know, dealing with depression. And I remember I would, I would give him like Herman Hesse novels and, you know, just things to get his mind. Cause I, I thought, I always just thought, you know that if you're depressed in your, you know, in your late teens, um, going and have, be having to lie in an institutional room for weeks as though that's going to help you, you know, like come on. So I, I would
0: narcissist and Goldman,
3: narcissist and Goldman and. Yeah, Beneath the Wheel, Peter Cameron's in and Stefan Wolf, and obviously Sid Hartha.
0: Yeah. That's a nice thing for you to do as a friend.
3: I was impressed with him, you know. I, I really I really thought it was cool. It, yeah, we always listened to great music, you know. I mean it was that was a great part time job for me, the doing that a couple of days a week. Um
0: And you were playing music around that time.
3: Yeah, that was kind of before right before the dandies and then into the first year or so and then we got signed to capital and we were just gone and then but when peter and i were putting the band together and and playing shows in you know cafes and little punk bars and stuff um we also worked for a swing band as their two roadies nice and they had this you know like Ford Astro van and it had no seats in the back. It just had the two seats in front and it was literally packed to the ceiling front to back with all their equipment. And it was our job to drive out to wherever the wedding was going to take place. Just come over, leave our, leave our, uh, our car, leave the, our, leave the Volkswagen van at in front of the guitarist's house get into that van, drive it out to Hood River or, you know, North Portland or wherever, uh, and and load in all this equipment, their PA, their lights, the guitar gear, the keyboardist gear, the drum set, set the whole thing up, me and Pete, and sound check it all in, <laughs> you know, EQ, get the mix correct, you know. And then uh, – and then um, – just blow off until two in the morning when we would go back, so we got to go see gigs and then but we never got to party after. like we'd go see Oasis at Satyricon, you know, and and uh, you know we'd put on our mod suits and get our hair all styled out and uh, you know, and then uh, rumpled correctly, and then go put our t-shirts and jeans back on and our work foods and we would go and drive back out to wherever and
0: and so you knew how to set up a pa you, you talked about eq thats stuff you know do you teach yourself that stuff
3: no I, I i well i did for years um there when i was young when i was in my early teens they invented the four-track cassette recorder multi-track uh, recording, home recording, you know, just a little tiny thing the size of a mm. laptop, like five laptops stacked on top of each other, right? You put a cassette in there, and and then instead of it being, you know, side one, left and right, side two, turn it over, side two, left and right, it was all four tracks, one direction. Some genius figured that out. So I had one of those at home, and then I had taught myself a little guitar, and I was a drummer, so I had learned how to play some basic guitar stuff, and then um, I swapped my karate instructor uh, drum lessons for uh, karate lessons, and he just gave me his guitar because he didn't want to be a drummer. He didn't want to play guitar. He's like, I don't like it. I want to be a drummer. So he bought a drum set. So I had a guitar, and then um, you know I bought a microphone, a digital delay pedal. And just kinda of started recording at maybe fourteen years old and trying to write simple songs and but playing the drums in other people's bands. So I never really had to ever think about playing my music for anyone but myself. It was just me alone at night, you know, in my parents' house, recording during the day, and then at night I would kind of mix it and just smoke pot and try to get it perfect and lay there, do vocals at night and not finished lyrics, just shoveling of the last of Shuba, you know, kind of mm, lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And then put some delay on it, and I could just make exactly what I was capable of uh, making that I would like and, and that would be satisfying for me. So you know, ten years later, I, twelve years later, I put the Dandies together. and that's my first band playing um, guitar and singing because, uh, boy, that was frightening and really quite pathetic at first, but I had so much experience in recording. And then I had also gone to music college and it was a, it was a heavy jazz school, um, in North Portland, which is where all the jazz clubs were. And it was, there weren't really, I think, I think there were, there were maybe two or three other white kids in that, in that, in that program. Um, but they had recording engineering, so I learned more technical um, big studio stuff but I had already understood the job of fitting sounds together and making sounds more interesting and and doing you know great rock has always been driven by great studio experimentation um, mm-hmm. so i i had I had learned that at home and then i learned all the technical straight guy stuff uh how to kind of just make a professional or or at least some semi-pro sounding record in a yeah. real studio but it's you know it was jimmy hendrix cutting his or jimmy page cutting his speakers and miking that up you know john lennon going in to make uh sergeant peppers and saying telling jeff emmerich that um we're not going to put mics anywhere that they've ever been put before. We're not going to mic any anything up in the professional, traditional way. We're going to have to learn to use what would be considered bad sounds, hmm. and that made everything more interesting. So there's um, that. That was all stuff I, I learned at home, and I, I put myself through that jazz college by working part time at uh, a, a chain of Um, you know, the little convenience stores called Plaid Pantry. (laughs) And uh, Portland being a declining population, you know, dirt hole of a town, um, there were lots of flaky people that were working uh, at at this, you know, myriad. There must have been 200 at least of these around the Portland and suburb areas. So, that I had a phone and and a car meant that I could basically work anytime I had nothing to do. I could just call yeah. them up and say, Hey, I'm available until eleven. You know, I could call them at two right. two in the afternoon and they'd go, Great, we've had a manager who's been at blah 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 store one eighteen for, you know, twenty two hours. He's he's trapped in there, he can't leave, he can't go, you know. <laughs> so can you get out there and, and work until 10 and then we've got a guy who said he can show up in 10 and work the graveyard shift. you know perfect yeah so that was probably the most smooth job because if they called me i could just go no man i got a big party to go to tonight you know yeah. like, i can't yeah. work bro so um uh that was a good one working at those five and dimes is is a, well i guess not a five and it was a convenience store but that was a good one. That's that's how I paid for college, man. That was just community college. You know, it was it was cheap to begin with. And if you don't take tests and you don't care about getting a degree, it the price came down even farther. So I think it was I think it was about 375 bucks a term to to do what's called auditing. Right? What does that mean? That just means you go sit in the back and you just listen. You know, and that's it. You just learn. You don't take the tests. You don't get a grade. It doesn't apply to any other call. You just—it's like you don't exist. You just get to walk in and sit in the back and listen for free, basically. Three hundred seventy-five bucks a term for as many courses as you want to take. So I would take a full load of everything I thought I was going to need to, to know um, to to write songs and be a deep enough person to have some actual meaning and perspective in my songs.
0: In lyrics as well.
3: That's what I'm talking about is lyrically, is just try to not come across like an idiot. Because I, I, I understood at least well enough to know that you've, if you're dishonest in songwriting, the people you want to uh, attract... and and relate to you and find you through your music will not find you if your songs Mm. suck, you know, like if you, if they're just filled with cliches and, you know, banal sort of Mm. little, you know, things you've ripped from other songs and things about, you know, dumb ideas about love and baby, you hurt me so bad and whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the things that young, people tend to obsess on the most. Uh, so I, I just wanted, so I took philosophy, sociology, you know, layout of an argument. I took introductory statistics. I took sociology, uh, history of Western civilizations, um, f- women in literature, poetry, improvisational theater. I mean, I just went for it. Studio photography, darkroom wow. photography, filmmaking, you know, I took everything I needed to, to do this job that I ended up doing with my life.
0: Wow. So you were, you were prepared.
3: I thought I was, you know, I was, I was prepared for the art part of it. I wasn't prepared for any of the, you know, what we're doing right now. I was horrible at it. I was, you know, I would show up drunk. I would show up hungover. I was potty mouthed jerk, you know, I, I, that's one thing they don't have in college is how to find a good manager who can train you, how to be a PR person for your own artistic endeavor. I see. And so I failed miserably and I was gullible and, you know, people could talk me into doing anything and then film it and then edit it later and make me look like a really way worse person than I actually am, and I was pretty sloppy, you know I wasn't you know I was a pretty arrogant, sloppy jerk anyway, so it wasn't hard, but um as far as the art stuff, you know, I can look back on all of the dandies uh the the videos and the mm. um and the music and and anything that you know I was uh that i that was my project my video to direct or you know the, the my production i i look back on it and it all is it's just i love it i think it's great work and it's it's at least what i consider great work and i'm not
0: yeah everything you've done has a has a great feeling about it
3: thanks man yeah i mean a lot of other musicians who go oh god our early work. oh i don't even, can't even listen to those oh you know they they can't listen to their own records so why did you make them to, to, to make it, you know, that
0: have you ever gone through, you know, a dark period or, or maybe kind of, you know, relinquished that artistry to, to give it to someone else?
3: No, never, never. Um, we did get a couple of times things were taken away from us. Um, we, uh, the record welcome to the monkey house was actually finished. And was called the Dandy Warhols are sound, and uh, we had you know lived in New York City for a couple months and worked at Jimi Hendrix Studio with Russell the Dragon Elevato, who was you know a very exclusively urban producer, and um, and and really a, a visionary and, and one of the best in, in history. He was amazing. And that record, you can probably find it out there somewhere. I think we forced the issue in it and managed to put it out, maybe even illegally ourselves. I don't know, but uh, it got taken away. Uh, the, a new president in the middle of that two months. A new president at 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 Capitol Records, and he comes in to check on us because we had just sold a million and a half records of of Thirteen Tales from Urban Bohemia, um, so. With with absolutely no support from the label, so he was. What is going on here? Everybody loves this band, you know. And he he, he Why? He doesn't understand why. You know, we're not slick. We're not this. We're not that. Um, you know. So he comes in. He listens to this urban record that we that we're almost finished with, and he goes, Yeah, yeah. I hear all your reference points. Yeah, you're cool. This is cool. You guys are real cool. No one's gonna play this on radio. It's not black. It's not white. What is it? And I said, uh, you mean like Eminem, Elvis? And he goes, oh, come on, you're not Eminem or Elvis, okay? <laughs> right? So he uh,
0: – How did you respond to that?
3: Uh, you know, you just I – don't, I don't remember. I was so enraged. I mean I have no memory of anything past that moment of that conversation. So my, I think what happened was Peter said – well, why don't you just remix a single for different radio styles? And he goes, is that okay? Is that okay with you guys? And I, th- and I, I, I just remember looking at Peter because he would be the last one. Peter is the stodgiest, like, you-do-not-touch-our-shit guy, you know? Like, he's not even going to cooperate. Peter is definitely, like, he's even more just my little bubble than I am. And so when Peter, I remember, I remember Peter, the only part I really remember is him going, okay. When, when the president said, dude said, um, pick a mixer, pick a mixer, you know? And he goes, okay. I think Peter said, okay. And so I just went, wow. If Peter says, okay, okay. Um, so I picked a mixer to do redo the "We Used to Be Friends" single, and I kept calling. And then that was, you know, we got home maybe in, November, in early November from that couple months of the fall in, in New York City, and uh, and I was calling our A and R guy at Capitol and calling the president, like, "What's going on? I want to hear this remix. I want to hear the single. Is it remixed yet?" And they go. Oh, gonna gonna we'll let you know we'll let you know when we're going in. Mm-hmm. And then late January I finally get a call back from our new AR guy, not the guy who signed us. He had he had been let go or quit cuz he was frustrated and angry all the time about the new president who was, you know, an idiot, an actual dumbass, arrogant, mistake-making, blundering dumb shit. And uh I get a call from our our new A&R guy, who also arrogant dumbass, Um, and he goes, your record's done. The new mixes are all done. Your record's done. It's going out. It's going to press. Excuse me?
0: The the radio mixes?
3: No. They remixed the whole record.
0: Fucking hell.
3: Yep. So... No way. Fortunately... uh, Fortunately... He had asked me who to get as a mixer. And do you remember Where's Your Head at?
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah.
3: I wanted that mixer. Right? (laughs) So, um, so, who was that? Jeremy Wheatley. Now, he's not a, he is not like a stylist or anything. He's not going to take something that's uncool and like, you know, carve it up and chop it up and turn it into something cool. He's not a visionary like that. He's just, a fucking great mixer, right? Yeah, we got to hand him some cool stuff, and we did. Um, the and so we ended up with a really great record out of it, but not as cool as as the Urban Russell Elevado mixes. I mean, not even remotely in the same league as that. Um, it was a lot more normal, but it was cool enough because we had laid down some really cool sounds, and the songs are really very straightforward, and they're they're no bullshit, you know. So the record is very good, although. Nick Rhodes, who we had done a bunch of post-production with, we did a, a good several weeks with Nick in, in London, um, <clears throat> had taken it upon himself to do remixes of two of the songs. And so he utterly <laughs> ruined two of my favorite songs, um, one called I Am Over It, and one called "Scientist," And if you can find the original version of that record, those two songs um, before the remixes are they're, you know, maybe two of the greatest pieces of work my band has ever done. They're certainly two of the greatest pieces, if not the two greatest pieces of work we've ever done. But That's um, so funny. And they got they got it. Hammered. I mean, they are just <laughs> so. They are truly. I, I find them truly embarrassing. You know, when they come on, I just get kind of sick to my stomach. And like, at a ho- I hope people are talking while those two tracks are on. They're so subpar to what the you know my band has set ourselves up to be. You know, our minimum yeah. amount of acceptable flaw and you know inconsistency is is. Is way higher than these two pieces of silliness, you know. And um, but otherwise, I would say we escaped we escaped that debacle um, better than any band I've ever heard of who got their record taken away and mixed without them because it, it used to happen all the time.
0: Up until Thirteen Tales, between that period of time of music school and and working those jobs and starting Dandies. You know, had you looking back in retrospect on those years, had you learned a lot? You know, up until that two thousand point,
3: we put out our first. We got signed to Tim Kerr Records in ninety four, and then put out our first record in ninety five. And basically, all I was, all we were trying to do was learn how to play together live. That was it. I was trying to learn how to write songs, how to complete them. Um, and uh,
0: After all those years of preparation as well.
3: Well, I was not really preparing for this job because I was a drummer. This is my first band. I did not know how to – I could not – I had never had a guitar with a guitar strap. I had never stood up and played guitar. I had never <laughs> sang into a microphone and heard, it, heard my voice come out of a speaker at my feet pointing up at me before. That whole, I mean, that was what we were learning, you know, and I would give up and I'd go, I'll come down and practice by myself. And Peter would just stand there with that look, that Pete look and go, no, you're going to put your guitar back on and you're going to stand there and you're going to sing and we're going to do it over and over again. You know, we'll turn down if you need us to, you just need to ask. Do you want more of your vocal in the monitor you just need to ask. Count it off, let's go. And he just forced me like you know and he had never been in a band before and he was the teacher. So he was yeah. he was the backbone of the thing, you know. He was really making sure this worked. He he, he you know, he wasn't gonna let me bogue out or anything. Um, but so that was what all the learning was till you know, till then. I, I had been in bands where I was in charge enough of Doing the videos that when we, when we, I had a great filmmaker as a singer in in an earlier band. And he, so I I had learned a lot about that. Um, So I made the Dandy's first video, and I had a $500 budget to make a video, and I knew what to do. And so that one is called TV Theme Song, and it's still on YouTube. Uh, And, and I just, you just have to, do what you do with sounds uh, in a recording. You fuck with them and you fuck with them. and You crank on them and you distress them and you tighten them back up. And and, and that's what you have to do to get images to be exciting or mentally stimulating and, or stimulating to the eyeball. You know, uh, you've got to crank on them. So if you watch the video, it won't look – it doesn't look that f- freaky. But, man, let me tell you, it took a long time of rerunning the stuff. I had to get a Fisher Price toy camera, um, figure out how to play the thing back on my TV and then get spray paint black cardboard, tape it around it because I needed a fisheye lens to get it to look cool.
0: No way. I didn't even know you could do that.
3: Then you know, that's seeing outside the frame of the TV. So I need to make the TV frame black bigger, you know, and like how to f- record that back into the VHS cassette pl- recorder player, you know, and it was just all these kinds of things. And then find a friend who had a friend that edited Fish in the Great Northwest. And so he had access to <laughs> an editing bay. And I then went over there and it was only maybe eight blocks from my house so I could walk over there whenever he had two hours in the studio and nothing to do. He'd go, I can do it right now. So I would walk down there and we would edit for two hours and finally this thing is done for the $500 budget. Our label sends it to MTV, which um, at that time owned the world. MTV had made musicians as important as athletes politicians movie stars it was you know i think that was about when they had decided that they didn't want apartheid to be in south africa anymore mtv had decided that gotten everybody everybody to gang up the hugest political press, press blitz maybe in history well since you know getting us to join world war ii to come in and save your asses as we say over here, don't know if that's true, but that's what we say from the tiny tyrant. Um, but I, I sent; they set off this video and MTV played it two weeks in a row on their hip 120 minutes video show. And they played it at the top of midnight, two weeks in a row. And that was it. It was, you know, we had, we had, record labels lining up to fly in take us out to dinner fly us to la fly us to new york party us down charm us get us to sign with them so that was then became the learning curve we still have to have part-time jobs pete and i at that point i'm working i'm doing a, a day or two a week at the big hippie repair working on cars and he had gotten me to do mobile too so i could I could drive somewhere and check out someone's car and go, yes, your engine has seized up. You know, you're going to have to get it towed a the shop, blah, blah, blah. blah. You know, There's 20 bucks. Okay, cool. That took me a half hour. You know, uh, I was doing that. We're still roadieing for the swing band on Friday and Saturday nights. Um, and what, Oh, and Pete and I are chopping wood now as well. For, <laughs> for <a> little, <laughs> <laughs> um, How
0: did you get into chopping wood?
3: Uh, His parents own a bunch of property up on the hill here, and so all their neighbors own property up on the hill too. And so, you know, Pete just called up, you know, his parents want us to chop some wood. Then the next door neighbors who have the, you know, the seven acres next door to them want us to chop some So it was just sort of this, okay. you know, the people that have, you know, owns eight acres and stuff like that. They got a lot of wood to chop, you know so we would do it yeah funny
1: the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
0: Did you realize at that point, you know, having made the video that got on 120 minutes and the label thing started to happen i mean seems to me it might not be so obvious to, be, to you but you know it's obvious to me like how resourceful you were of yourselves and you know i wondered if you were you know were you aware of that at the time did you know like yeah this is our art and we're going to control it
3: yes absolutely absolutely we have never recorded in a studio we've never gone into a professional studio we always built our own studios and recorded our records on our own terms. Then went into a real studio, but would rent the studio from like midnight to five a.m. to mix mm. it, and you know find an engineer who will a mixer that was good enough that wanted the gig, knew that we were making real work that was going to end up being known on an international level, which is not easy to do in Portland, Oregon, um, in nineteen ninety five. But we did it, and and we got great. You know, we got pretty pretty great records out of it. Yeah, Our first record is pretty great. You know, the white cover, the Dandies rule. Okay, um, yeah, they all sound great. And then the next one, come down. You know, we we did in a double wide trailer um, that had been you know decked out with a mixing board and some some muffled squishy stuff on the walls. Um so then, you know, in that one I went and mixed with Chad Blake, who had done Chibomato and Soul Coughing and all these amazing sounding records. Um and that was come down. And uh, then It
0: can't be lost on you that like during like kind of the nuclear blitz of the music industry in the last twenty years, do you think having that kind of foundation has been your survival? Like the the reason why you've survived.
3: The reason we survived for the last twenty years, kind of after the well, the last fifteen years after the the crash of us and of guitar music and and jangly guitar music and kind of mm. our thing. The the reason we survived is because when I was making three million dollars a year, I bought a quarter of a city block and put film production and music production. Um, live performance venue. I've got a wine bar in there. So that place pays for itself by, you know, having, I have, you know, like if I, if the ballet, Oregon Ballet Theater, you know, needs to have a fundraising event, they rent my space. It's beautiful. It's weird and trippy and decadent looking, you know, and then I've got a wine bar because I'm a wine collector and a wino. Um, And that, so those two places just pay for the taxes and all the stuff. I just bought the, the giant space in cash. Um,
0: read a lot about that in interviews and read a lot about how you say you kind of bought your freedom because you know you knew otherwise yeah. it would be taken away from you.
3: Yeah. So owning our own place uh, uh, and studio is great. And I, 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 I know that actually pre uh, 2005, like the, the in the 90s all of that experience is what gave me the edge and it is what made it possible for us to consistently put out cool really really interesting cool or edgy or whatever or sexy or just straight up fun uh stuff we could you know really control the ball I directed all the videos except for the David LaChapelle video and um you know, and I produced all the records with some of the greatest, you know, producers and mixers uh, of history. So I got to learn from these these greats. So that, that helped us then. But now it doesn't, of course, help us at all, because everybody knows how to run that stuff inside their computer. Right? Every, everybody's an engineer, everybody's really good. I mean, I don't think there's a 23 year old on earth that doesn't, Sit and make music for themselves, you know, with their mm. headphones on. You know, what we do to your average 15 year old now sounds like what jazz would sound like to um, a metalhead in 1979, right? <laughs> it would just sound like old people music. And they, they would wonder why people are, why, why some other, you know, teenagers are making music like this. I mean, why would they want to sound like old people? Why are are those 19 year olds playing guitars and stuff? And like, he's got a real drum set up there. He's hitting stuff. He's hitting things. And there's, you know, there's microphones. Shit's feeding back. Why are they doing that? It just sounds like old people music. I mean, that's kind of what, but I was a kid who loved jazz, you know? So, Hmm. um, but it really is. I think it's, it's only like intellectual eccentrics that are, you know, that are plugging in microphones and miking up guitars and stuff. Yeah. Billy Eilish, you know, like that's all canned, you know, her whole, her whole thing was she had this, she has this brother that is just a pretty amazing producer, but I think it's all in the box bedroom music. Um, yeah. But right when COVID hit and they, they killed the James Bond movie that was supposed to come out well yeah. those two did the the theme song and it 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 sounds like a real recording i mean it, it's like it sounds big time classic I legendary and i must say it's the best theme song they've had um, you know i think since the, since the 70s um, I, I did like the Duran Duran. I thought the, I thought Duran Duran did a great did a <laughs> kill. I thought Vito Kill was brilliant, actually. Yeah. Um, big time and sexy and had all those brand new sort of synclavier um, orchestra hit, you know, bump, bop, kind of
0: just started
3: huge orchestra the vibrations, samples dropped in there. When that stuff was new, but yeah, the Billie Eilish one, man. I, I think you can find it online. It is yeah, you can check It's it out. a really powerful piece of music. So uh, you know, I guess you know that 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 might just be a special uh, occurrence for that legendary franchise. You do you make a real epic piece of music for that. You do not sit at home and go Bleep, bloop 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 bloop
1: bloop bloop bloop
3: you know and then and then you know sing something about the title of the song like you you go in and you do it but it it certainly does it certainly made me feel good that you know these these two that have you know made such a bang out of bedroom music uh, yeah. actually but i i knew that dude was great i mean i've listened to enough billy eilish to know that, that that dude is serious he's a great producer
0: did you did you know do you reckon you know 15 years ago were you pretty fully aware that you know you were maybe it's a stupid question isn't it because music's always changing but were you do you reckon you were aware like how much it would change
3: yeah well yeah definitely um i you know it had started in the late 2000s so our our last record for capital which we got you know, we wanted to get off of Capitol because they had taken our record away and remixed it without us. So the next record we made was auditorium or warlords of Mars. And that was our, we got to get off Capitol record. And the, so the first song is 10 minutes long. The second song is nine minutes long, right? It just, it's, it's just a a, a real, let's just see how far we can go. You know, let's, yeah let's, let's not do anything like even we have ever done it before. And let's just make sure that, you know, we make the most powerful thing we can, the most extremely unimitatable thing. And let's make sure it does not sound like the trend, which was headed towards, which was in the can music, you know, bedroom music was,
2: mm-hmm. was
3: starting to really happen. Um, so that, that was a reaction to that. And we definitely got dropped from Capitol. And <laughs> in our arrogance, we really thought, oh, it doesn't matter, we're huge. We'll, we'll just do it ourselves. That's the, that's the future of music, you know?
0: We just And you were go. stable enough to feel like
3: that. Yeah, we thought we could do it. And we couldn't believe how much we failed. to. <laughs> to once we were off Capitol, we, we made our next record, Earth to the Dandy Warhols. And uh, a lot of people think that is our greatest work. I, I, I often listen to it and go, yep, that is our greatest whole album we've ever done. But we sold nothing. We had a flimsy sort of indie label that was supposed to do the marketing. and you know, But we didn't care because we thought you'd just reach out to your, your fan base via the internet. But mm. you can't. The world is covered with a thick gray fog of shit and you can't scream into it loud enough to be heard. Yeah. You know, you can Yeah. It is it is bizarre how much you need a real office with real people connected to other real offices all over the world with real people buying old school advertising, popping up windows and stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean it's just and we're you know, and then the the hubris of these four, you know, barely hanging in there. I mean, we're drunks at that point, you know, party animals, flaky, overindulged artists. Um, great, we make great records with cool videos. You know, we're supposed to run a record label, like what? kind of idiots are we like really did we even think for a minute what that meant no man we just thought we'll do it. we can do anything and we can't do anything we can't run a record label. we can't i mean we, mm. it's hard so yeah yeah that was the that was the, the great downward spiral we 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 should have you know sucked it up and and just started making electronic music you know it would have been a lot easier <laughs> Saved ourselves a lot of money and pain and uh found a great electronic label cuz those were the people that were coming on strong at that point and really yeah and have taken over so well now it's all back in the hands of you know old school giant record you have to be on a giant record label to get big again it's it, it always Do you think so? It always resets to that. I think so. Yeah. I mean I've certainly noticed you know that when you you know you see Oliver Tree, you know Cash machine, you know, and you see his face around, and, and you know, and then you look at the video, and it's like, okay, that's a major label video. I mean, oh, there it is, Atlantic I see, yeah. Records. Yep, you know, yeah. I mean, what's you know, what's what's what are the Eilish's on? What label are they on? You know, they're on a
0: oh, that'd be a major, yeah, of course, yeah.
3: You know, so if you don't want to be touring in a van nowadays, you got to get on a major label, man. Go into debt to your label because if they drop you, you don't have to pay it back. Go in deep into debt with your label if you can, (laughs) if they will allow you to. And let me tell you, they will dig in claws and heels, dug in deep into the dirt to resist you from doing it. That's why then you also sign with a big management company who can ball bust your label and, and tell them, no, you are. They're touring on a bus this time. They're flying business class this time. They have yeah, yeah. three days of rehearsal in London um, to adjust to the, you know, the sleep deprivation Climate. that inevitably happens with yeah. traveling east, easterly around yeah. the globe. So yeah, I, that's what you know. If you got any young bands who have that opportunity, you you know, and they have a manager going, we don't want to go too deep into the label debt. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If it's for your comfort, <laughs> yes, you do.
0: Have you, you know? been, have you had publishers this whole time? Because pub- a lot of artists, you know, publishing is no, their way kept, of paying I the rent. I
3: kept, I kept my publishing. I only signed what they call an admin deal. And I, you know, I, I got great back-end numbers because I believed that we were going to do really well. I didn't bet against myself, you know. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I took... I took bigger numbers of the back end um, and no cash advance. And that's sort of my deal. Uh, that's I smart. I, I, yeah, it was very smart. And then um, several years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, maybe I did something really stupid. I got offered a
2: huge
3: advance. And, uh, and I took it to re-sign. And I think it's taken, and I lost so much of it on taxes and withholdings. So I couldn't, I couldn't invest it uh, because they have to hold it in case you can't pay the taxes or in case you lose it. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. ridiculous. So I lost a year of, of. uh, of gains on this money, and then I lost half and it was just it I was right I was writer when I was you know twenty six years old and said yeah. no thanks then I was after all that all those years of experience I finally blew it and i I've, I've since recovered from it uh but it was hard i mean it was the scariest time of my life i you know i i am I gonna lose my house like well, I might lose this studio, which is really the source of, of where we can, what makes it possible for us to continue. And, uh, in a, in a mental sense of artistic freedom, we walk into the place and we are loosened up and free artistically just walking mm. into that place makes you feel that mm. way. So, um, yeah, it was really hor- horror. It was really stupid. Don't, don't, if you think your band's not going to stay together, don't tell anyone and take a huge publishing advance. <laughs> uh, but if you really think you're in for the long haul and you kind of have that sense that you're you're better than most and your band can stick together, those are the two ways to make it in this. Things you need to make it in this world, you know, stay, stay yeah, together, yeah. Don't, don't give up and yeah. also just be a little better than most, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah well oh yeah Courtney I mean thanks so much you know these are real kind of long form chats and I love it because I think that's where you get the good shit and you know all of this stuff that we've been talking about you know since the band started since the first record came out you know taxes and fucking publishing and managers you know tell me if I'm wrong but those are all kinds of little part-time jobs within the the role right
3: yeah I, I I would those are, knowing how to hire and fire managers is something I wish I had known we we have for about seven months now had the first real manager we've ever had Wow yeah we've always had a tour manager that you know was very tight and knew how to handle us on the road so, hey man do you want to be our manager you know like yeah, you know yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff like I, I don't know how to be a manager don't worry about it. we manage ourselves you know we handle ourselves but we just want mm. you to just kind of be the point guy move to portland you know we'll pay you you know x amount of dollars you know a good yearly salary you know and so we've done that we had one great manager um, for a couple of years back in the day but he was he was terrible at hiring employees he was a great manager but he would schluff sh- us off to you know some you know goofballs that were just kind of Hollywood like working here for a, a year and then worked there for a year you know and just yeah. they are just you know they were terrible they were flaky they were you know they <laughs> we had a we had one of these dudes come to us and go hey you guys um, you know because there's four there's four people in my band right and he goes hey uh, by the way. Um, the snowboard company that's giving you snowboards, uh, they they only have three for you. You know, and I, you know, my ding, ding bullshit says, it goes, really? They know we're a four-piece band, do they? But they only have three. Uh, w- Did you get one? Well, I got one for myself. Yeah. No, you got okay. mine. It Bring it. You know, and I was like... Like yeah. as soon as the snowboard showed up, you know, I called
0: yeah.
3: called the 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 guy who was supposed to be managing us and said, "Uh, okay, get him out of my life. If I ever hear from him again, I'm gonna throttle him. <laughs> okay, either either he goes or you go, I and mean, you all go. And uh, you know, I ended up having to fire that guy anyway because it was just one clown after another. So yeah, we're you know. We we now actually have a real management company, and they're they're fantastic. Great. And our manager is awesome, and he hires and yeah. he knows how to hire people to run the day to day stuff. You know,
0: yeah. yeah. You mentioned sort of Hollywood there, and I read it a couple of times in interviews that you know you you spent some time in Hollywood, and you weren't digging it.
3: I I don't know if not digging it. I think you don't dig yourself in it is is the problem you get there and you don't get to you you know you want maybe want to go to something you get invited to a this or a that or a gala function or premiere gala premiere and you're way back in line and like Mm. other people are walking to the front and getting their picture taken and the velvet rope clicks open for them and smiles all around And you just, you can't help changing inside that you want, you want that, you know? And so I wouldn't really be able to, we'd have to go there and mix a record. you would have to be there for weeks. And I would just, I would last about a week and I'd go, I got to go home. I just got to go home Mm. for three days, four days, acclimate myself to myself again, care about what my other poor friends care about, which is great music or like I got this amazing motorcycle, this seventy-two CB seven fifty four for three hundred and fifty bucks and all I've gotta do is replace the right. gap the valves, replace the points, condenser yeah, yeah, yeah. and like yeah, yeah. like this is what life is. This is what this is what's yeah. great about being a bohemian is you don't care about how much money you have You care about how much fun you have and how much style you have doing it. Mm -hmm. I could have been poor forever, you know. I Mm -hmm. I wouldn't care as long as I didn't have a family to take care of or any of that kind of heavy shit. I would just, God, I I remember getting into my first apartment by myself, right. I live alone in a 390-square-foot apartment, old, cool, I've painted, I've I've sewn, I you know I know how to sew basic stuff, mm. so I've made curtains between all the rooms Great. that don't have doors and um you know it was Brilliant. just so cozy and beautiful. I've decorated with all my crap I've collected, brought home animal skins from Zakopane on the border between Poland and the Czech Republic and you know like just <laughs> crazy stuff, you know. Yeah. You know, a great. bed frame that I welded for an ex girlfriend and then went and took it back when she dumped me. Yeah. And I could, I remember looking out the window and uh, and just going, man, the old brick building that you drive inside to get gas, right? Like in mm-hmm. New York City kind of situation, like taxi, um, was across the street. And I just sat there and I went, I could live here forever and be perfectly happy by myself. This is crazy. This is, I can't believe living on my own. You know, this is really, yeah. this is really special. And I would have been yeah. fine. That place was costing me probably 380 bucks a month back then, you know. I wow. think now I, I stopped by a month ago and said hi to those ladies that I rented from for 10 years in there. And I haven't seen them in, you know, 15, 16 years. Now they're like a 1000 bucks a month, which is still cheap and would be. Totally worth it, you know if if you're not a family person, it doesn't hurt to be poor at all. Just don't live somewhere where you're faced with gluttony and overindulgence and like rich people, just don't live around them don't be around them you don't need it shoved in your face don't don't look at advertising and don't be a sucker for it, you know, and your self-esteem will withstand. All of this, yeah. you know? Somebody said, a uh, big writer guy said, you never, when you're in New York, you no matter how famous you are, you're not famous enough. Oh, I think it was Stipe told me that. You're not, no, man. Michael Stipe. In New York, no matter how famous you are, you're not famous enough when you're in New York. And that's doubly so in Hollywood
0: brilliant (laughs) well Courtney thank you so much what are you up to for the rest of the day
3: I'm going to work
0: amazing 30 second song
3: yeah I've got the song done I had a horn my horn section who are both also wine collectors came in last week and we were really (laughs) bad people we (laughs) drank and ate for 12 hours it was horrifying and I'll never do that again I don't get hangovers <laughs> because I drink nice wine. But if you do it for 12 hours, you'll, you'll actually get a real hangover. So, <laughs> so we're, we're not going to do that again. But um, uh, so I got to mix the horns. And then I got to think of something that goes with the lyrics of the song. Try to find some found footage or make a video or something, you know, just a quick.
0: Yeah, something. cool. Yeah. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for the chat. All
3: right, cool,
0: man. So there he is, Courtney Taylor-Taylor of the Dandy Warhols on 101 Part-Time Jobs, episode 100. Thank you, Caitlin Ballard. Thank you, Fess, for enabling that chat. Go on to 101parttimejobs.com to have a look at the book and order it if you like. Thanks for listening again. Here's Coxbarrow. I've been working all day for right me on the side This is a Mighty Moon Media podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people
1: what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.